0: you know, he sat there with my wife and I in this little teeny room. I don't know where the hell they found this little room to put us in. It was like a closet. And he said, uh, you know, you need to go home and get your will together and get everything in order. And this doesn't look good. Like you've had this for a number of years. And I didn't say anything to him. I think I was just like dead silent. I walked out of the room and I looked at my wife and I said, hell no, this is not my time. This is not going to be the end of me right now. Look forward, learn from your mistakes, don't do it again, don't be stupid, but look forward and look for new opportunities. We're gonna give this a shot. It's now or never, you know, like the stars are kind of aligned. Somebody asked me the other day, they're like, what do you wish you would have known when you got into this? And I'm like. All of a sudden this car kind of like screeches up and the door flies open. He's like, Mike, Mike, Mike. And I'm like, I assume this is for me. You know, I've never met another Chinese guy named Mike before, so I jump in the car. I'm Mike Ryan, 43 years old. I'm the CEO of RSP. We're a third generation family owned business. My brother and I are currently 50, 50 partners. RSP is a custom contract manufacturer with over 55 years of experience. Our tagline is you dream it. We build it. Our capabilities include plastic molding, silicone molding, metal fab, printed circuit boards, full turnkey product. Odds are pretty good that you've have something we've made in your house or seen at the ballpark or even at your dentist's office. No matter what you saw, It didn't have our name on it, so everything we do is custom-made. RSP is an end-to-end solution provider. This means we focus on six areas, engineering, prototyping, production, logistics, warehousing, and order fulfillment. Our headquarters are in Brookfield, Wisconsin, which is just outside Milwaukee, and we control and operate two facilities in China around Shenzhen, which is right across from Hong Kong. RSP will do well over $10 million in revenue this year. We have about 165 employees today, and we're having our best year ever. The year before I joined RSP was 2004, and we did about 700000 in revenue that year. And we had about
1: 10 employees, and they were all located in the U.S. How many employees did you have when you started? It sounded like about 16 years ago when you actually started and joined. Yeah, I joined the company in 2005,
0: and we had 10 employees at the time.
1: Yeah. How many again, just so we can reemphasize the change over this time?
0: We have about 165 today.
1: Well, congratulations. Did you ever think you'd get to this size? No. Thank you for being honest. Honestly, is the best policy. So everyone's going to appreciate this episode then. Yep, absolutely. And so what does RSP even stand for?
0: Yeah. So the business was started as Ryan Screen Printing. And we did a lot of real estate signs originally and kind of advertisements for Black's beer and stickers that would go on Harley Davidson. And over the years after I joined the company, we realized, hey, we're not doing as much screen printing anymore. We're doing all this other stuff. So we just kind of switched it over to RSP to simplify it and be more generic and kind of represent the variety of things we
1: do. So it sounds like almost the opposite of screen printing. Are we talking about screen printing like t-shirts or something else?
0: Yeah, so we don't screen print on fabrics. We did originally, but we haven't done that in a long time. And so screen printing was invented by the Chinese thousands of years ago. It's still essentially the same thing. You're pushing ink through a silk screen and laying it onto your substrate. And it's something we still do today, but it's a smaller percentage of our work. So we print mostly on
1: plastics and metal. Because, I mean, I'm on your website even now, and it's just like, holy smokes! Holy smokes. So like, I look at it, and there's so many different things it seems like you do. Even in industries, I'm seeing two products, education, energy, food and beverage. I mean, maybe 10 more. So you're not kidding about being open to doing new things from when you actually joined the company.
0: No, very true. Very well diversified, and that's served us really well in terms of downturns in certain economy or certain industries. You know, we're always able to kind of bounce back and kind of shift resources around.
1: You said in your intro, and I appreciate it, it was a great intro as far as understanding, it seems like a lot of people might use your products today and we don't know about it. So can you give us some more examples that we can understand of what your company actually makes? I'd love to talk about details about a lot of different things, but most of our customers
0: don't want us to tell you, <laughs> to tell everybody who's making their product. So we're kind of a top secret. Some of the things I can talk about, for example, are we do like a fishing lure. It's, it's called Zombait. It's a robotic insert that goes into dead bait fish to make them wiggle so they look like they're around. We've been working with that client. You know, that's something you might be using when you're out fishing in the ocean or a large lake. We do a lot of sensors that connect the telephone lines and they look for outages or things that are down. And so that's probably carrying our signal right now, perhaps. We do a lot of medical products, especially a lot of plastic molding in that industry. So I guarantee pretty much any dentist office you walk into is going to have something that we molded or maybe a user interface as well. What would they have that you molded, like the actual tools that they use or other parts? Yeah, some of the equipment that would be there. I'm actually starting up a new project right now for a big dental company, but I can't tell you who they are.
1: That's fine. I mean, those little details really don't matter because, again, I'm on your website, so at least I can understand. But I imagine that, you know, everyone's listening right now, obviously, audio only. So I'm just trying to paint a picture of the different type of things that you make. I don't know if you should break it down to percentages of like, I'm seeing plastic injection molding. Why don't you break it down a little bit more, make it a little bit easier for anyone who's just listening and not on your website?
0: Sure, absolutely. Most of our clients come to us looking for the user interface. How are you going to interact with this machine? And so the common product in that space is a membrane switch. So it's what you see on your microwave oven, you know, where you press the buttons in. More sophisticated would be like a touchscreen. And we do both those types of items. So a lot of times they come in for that. That's kind of a screen printed product with a flexible circuit behind it. And then as we get a little bit deeper into the product, you know, the next thing they say is, we ask is, you know, what is this mounted to? And they say, oh, it's, it's got this plastic bezel or maybe it's a metal bezel. So we'll build that for them. And then next step is, well, what's this interfacing with? Oh, well, there's a circuit board behind there and that controls our machine. We look at that as well. So if you kind of break it down, I'd say it's really probably 25% user interface. 25% plastic, about 25% of our business is metal fabrication, and then that other 25% this huge variety of stuff, whether it be silicone molding or the circuit boards, or we do some kind of standard off the shelf product sourcing as well. So a large variety there. And it's really spread across all those industries you see on our website medical, industrial, consumer, a lot of outdoor products. Yeah,
1: I think that's good. You've done a good job. The microwave was a perfect example. I think anyone of can understand kind of what you're saying there. I mean, it looks like I'm even seeing like a remote control for a TV would be an example.
0: Yep. We do some remote controls for like conferencing equipment. That's probably the one that's on there. We do a lot of silicone molding. So we might do millions of pieces of silicone molding, but it's not super expensive. So it's not a huge percent of our business.
1: If you ever wanted to start your own online store, there's no better time than right now. E-commerce brings in over $500 billion in sales each year, and that's expected to grow to $1 trillion in the next decade. If you have a business or product idea, you need to be selling online. But maybe you're scared of how much time it'll take to code your own website, or how expensive it would be to hire someone. Enter Volusion, the easiest and fastest all-in-one e-commerce platform designed specifically for small businesses. You don't need any coding or design experience. Imagine opening the online store of your dreams in minutes instead of weeks. What makes Volusion stand out? Well, you can get stunning 100% free themes built from the ground up with the best in-class design and SEO. You can drag and drop your products, manage your inventory, drive traffic to your site, accept credit card payments, and easily connect with your customers. With Volusion, it's easy to get started no matter your business. Then, take your sales to the next level with hundreds of free apps and integrations, premium shipping discounts, and in-house marketing and design experts that will help you find your target audience in no time. And with no transaction fees ever, our merchants make, on average, 2x more than on other platforms. What I like about Volusion the best is the overall clean look of the site and themes, plus the simple integration of other popular online tools. So come see why Volusion is the number one rated e-commerce platform according to Trustpilot. Get a free 14-day no-risk trial. No credit card required. Just visit volusion.com forward slash millionaire And as a special for Millionaire Interview listeners, get 50% off your first month's plan with code MILLIONAIRE. This is an exclusive discount available only for our listeners. Again, get a free 14-day, no-risk trial. No credit card required. Just visit Volusion, that's spelled out V-O-L-U-S-I-O-N.com forward slash millionaire. And as a special for our listeners, again, get 50% off your first month's plan with code MILLIONAIRE. Tied down at work. Don't let your software search kill those summer vibes. Now you can ditch the office overtime and find options for your business in minutes with Capterra. Read hundreds of thousands of reviews and make finding the right software for your business a breeze at Capterra.com forward slash millionaire. Capterra is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 950,000 reviews of products from real software users Discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 categories of software. Everything from project management to CRMs to email marketing to yoga studio management software. Well, just basically any category you can think of, they have covered. I used Capterra to check the top audio editing software and web conferencing software to make sure we're using the best products for editing and recording this podcast. So no matter what kind of software your business needs, Capterra makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Join the millions of people who use Capterra each month to find the right tools for their business. Visit capterra.com millionaire for free today to find the tools to make an informed software decision for your business. capterra.com slash millionaire. Capterra. That's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A.com/millionaire. C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash millionaire. Capterra. Software selection simplified. This seems like total opposite of just screen printing. Is there some relation that I'm missing? (laughs) No, no, I mean,
0: (laughs) we still do it. Screen printing for us is typically, we call it an overlay, or you might call it a label or sticker. A lot of that's still done with screen printing and we do that as a standalone product. But if you take a lot of our products that we do, even if it's full turnkey, still have some screen printing on them. So that's the label. It might be a CE label or a UL label or a barcode. I mean, that can all be done either digitally or through screen printing.
1: Okay. And I guess even in your intro too, you're saying it's a third generation family company?
0: Yes. So my brother and I are currently uh, 50-50 partners. The business was started by my father's brother, and that'd be John Ryan, and he had some success right away. He started this in his parents' garage, and his first client was a friend who needed real estate signs, and he did pretty well, and he asked my father, Bob Ryan, to join him, and so he joined him for a good number of years, and then their father was reaching retirement age, had a successful career, but actually came back into the business and joined them as well. We're third generation, but we didn't quite go in
1: order. I've never heard that part too. That's kind of interesting because I never thought about it that way too. Did John Ryan actually start it in 2005 or even before that?
0: No, we're 55 years in business now. So that'd be 1964, I believe, if I'm doing my math. And he actually started a little bit before that, but that was the year it was incorporated.
1: Okay, cool. Very interesting. It's just kind of fascinating. I think your story or like this company is the ones that people don't even think of as a business. At least I don't. I never even thought about. I think if you've broken down, I remember studying economics at one point and understanding even just a pencil. Like if you took a wooden pencil, understanding all the different parts to it, how they're all related in different businesses and were probably made in different parts of the world, whether it's the rubber tip or the actual wood or the lead within it, or even the metal part around it but your company seems to take it to another level of that kind of thought process of me never even thinking about who makes the keypad for a microwave or who does the stuff in the dentist office, you know?
0: No, absolutely. And my background, was a marketing finance accounting guy in college and went into public accounting and then consulting. And then I joined my brother in this business and we were just doing membrane switches and overlays at the time. And, you know, we we're looking for growth opportunities. It's been a great learning experience and had to kind of figure it out as I go along and learn a lot and hire good people. And, you know, you start talking about a BOM. So it's a bill of material for some of our products. We do some digital musical instrument line. There's three, four, five, 600 components that are coming together. And we have to develop a system and have the expertise to pull all these things together and assemble them and test them and do all that. And there's days, it's, it's a huge challenge and we're building stuff that's never been built before. It's all custom. So there's no rule book. There's no, hey, this is always gonna work. It's let's get the engineers together. Let's get in a room, let's get the customer and let's sit down and brainstorm. And that's really what I love about my job. I mean, every single day I'm learning something. There's not a day that goes by where one of my clients doesn't challenge me to do something new or try something different or find a solution to some problem they're having. It makes it a lot of fun.
1: That's good, especially if you wanna be mentally challenged. And I think a lot of the people listening do you want to be like, if you're going to make your own business, you want those type of things, you get tired of doing the same thing over and over. And so that's pretty cool that you're able to actually do that within your business. But I'm also, again, looking at the website and says now servicing the US, China, Canada, Australia, UK, and Israel, all those countries, as far as servicing those type of clients in those countries.
0: Yeah, we're focused on those areas right now. We actually currently have clients in over 40 countries. You know, we're in South America, we're in Central America, Africa, Middle East, Australia, and the countries you mentioned.
1: Right. Was this all you that expanded it? Because you said when you joined in 2005, it was 10 employees and now it's 165.
0: (laughs) You know, it's been really a tag teaming here with my brother. So my dad and his brother were running it and then my uncle actually passed away. John passed away and then it was my father and my brother. And then my mother actually had some health issues and my father had to leave the business. So it's just my brother. And that was around 2005. I was in consulting and just getting burned out. And my wife was pregnant with our first kid, our only kid. I just wanted something new. And so we looked at each other as probably after a couple of beers and said, we're going to give this a shot. It's now or never, you know, like the stars are kind of aligned because I didn't want to work with my uncle. I, I feel terrible that he passed away. And I would have worked with my dad, but we just kind of needed this perfect stew, I guess, to come together. And so when I joined, we both knew that we had to grow this thing. We had to look for opportunities. And I think my presence really got him going as well. And we both said, hey, let's look at stuff that we can do. And we ended up going to China and doing all this work. And I can go in more in depth than that. But I think it was both of us really driving the bus here and trying to figure out how to make some money,
1: really. So why don't we jump into the story there? You think that's a good place to start? I guess you're saying you're 2005. Can you tell us like how old you were and maybe walk down that decision a little bit more because this is kind of a life-changing moment if you're going to stop kind of the nine to five and then join the family business is obviously way different dynamics.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I was 29 years old. I was working for a company down in Evanston doing pharmaceutical consulting. It was a great place to learn and to work and It was one of those places where everyone went to Northwestern and had an MBA or Stanford. I mean, it was just like, everyone was super smart. So then it just came down to billable hours. It was a lot of work, but a lot of learning opportunities. But I mentioned before, my mother got sick at one point and I was working at this company at that time. And I went to my boss and I said, you know, I have to take some time off here at some point. And I'd already been telling him kind of what was going on. And he said, well, we got tax season coming up. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm going to tell you this. And you're going to talk to me about tax season right now. Well, I did work there a few more months, but I think that was the key to me that I was going to look for a change. Like I mentioned, my wife was pregnant and we knew we're living in this little condo. We love the place, but it was not suitable for an infant We had third floor walk up in an old factory. And so that wasn't going to work out. So it was either the suburbs of Chicago or I call it Chicago's North suburb here is, is Milwaukee. And so our family was up here. And like I said, I talked to my brother and we kind of looked at this as a, let's give it a shot. And so I sat down with my wife and I said, here's what I'm thinking about doing. I told her I was never going to do this because I kind of had to be this perfect alignment for it to work out. And I'd had this success in consulting, but then all of a sudden that took a turn. And so she said, well, I can't stop you and I'd love to support you. And and she's always been super supportive. And she said, but I'm going to give you two years. You got two years to get back to your consulting salary. And I said, hell yeah, I can do that. No problem whatsoever. I'm super smart. I'm going to figure this
1: out. I'm going to jump on board. And what was your consulting salary?
0: Uh, <laughs> back then, I mean, it was probably in the you know, 70s or 80s around there. And so I took that as a challenge and I can tell you straight up, I did not meet that goal of getting that salary target in two years. So it didn't even come that close, but we'd had enough success and we could kind of see the direction we were moving. And ultimately, too, we were making money. But during that period and for a few years after that, too, I mean, we we're just putting it all right back into the business and trying to grow it for the future.
1: Again, you kind of briefly mentioned this at Evanston, what you talked about. You were just outside of Chicago in the north. Your family was about two hours north in Milwaukee. So this was the moment that you moved back when you were 29 in 2005. And did you move in with your brother or like, did you find a new place up there? How'd that go?
0: You know, I lived with my father for a while. We bought a house and you know how you plan everything out and on this date, this is going to happen, on that date, this. And so we bought this house. It was a fixer-upper. It needed some work. And so we tore everything apart. My wife's pregnant. She can't help. Luckily, my father-in-law is kind of a builder. My dad's handy. So they're helping me out. And then all of a sudden, my son was born prematurely, screws up the whole schedule. Not only that, but he has a blockage in his intestines and the doctor warned us that this thing is often fatal. And so we're down in the NICU at the intensive care down at Northwestern Hospital in Chicago. My wife's down there. I'm trying to relaunch this business, I guess, with my brother. It was an existing business. So I really had to kind of stretch myself. And today I can say, luckily, my son is 13 years old and he's fantastic and smart and healthy and thriving. He's actually a great sounding board for me in, my, in the business here and loves to hear what's going on here. But You know, now that he's okay, I guess I learned that these things happen in life. You need to kind of roll with it. Luckily, like I said, everything turned out, but it taught me a lesson in terms of business, in terms of appreciating life circumstances. And I appreciate that with my employees too, and being understanding of what's going on. I told you the horror story with my boss in in Evanston kind of saying, (laughs) don't leave during tax season, but I'm more flexible with my employees because of what I've gone through in terms of that.
1: I've mentioned this earlier episodes of this podcast. It's like realizing when you have a bad boss, you can appreciate that because later on when you're know you the boss, you can remember how they treated you and you don't want to treat people like that. So it's always a good opportunity that might stink right then. And you're like, dude, you don't even obviously care about me to make sure that you remember that. And obviously you still do. So it still can actually help you today. Just trying to learn from every experience. And you said, I guess at the same time, when you were moving up there, you were buying a house. So did you have like saved money too cuz again this seems like it adds an extra level of worry if you have a premature baby and you said you bought a house and you're trying to fix it up I guess I'm only confused at that part having enough money to be able to do that when you're moving up there to start the family business and probably going to live on rice and beans in the beginning
0: yeah so i did not have a lot saved up luckily we sold our condo in chicago and it got a really nice return on it and that was like our padding i'll say you know we knew that Maybe the first couple of months up in Milwaukee we were going to be very lean in terms of our spending. We were remodeling the house and, like I said, trying to do as much as we could. The day my son was born, then, I mean, our kitchen had no walls, no floor. Nothing was painted. I mean, it was a complete disaster. So, you know, you look at life's big moments, changing jobs and having a kid and moving to a new house. And my wife and I were doing all four of those things at the same time because you know, she was gonna be moving to Milwaukee and finding a job and later that year as well. So we took it all on and I think we, we did it in stride. But yeah, there wasn't a lot of savings. There wasn't a lot of margin for error. I and mean, I think that's why the two year ultimatum <laughs> was given to me. Like, hey, Mike, you know, bring this together. And, and I agree. But like I said, luckily, you know, we worked our butts off, you know, those first couple months and first year until we could get a little comfort and then just kept, like I said, investing back in the business and trying to grow it.
1: As you were doubling down on your business and putting more money into it, you wanted to add more stress to your life, it sounded like too. So it makes sense too. It's like, okay, if you're able to sell that house If it's much more expensive in Evanston than where you're buying one in Milwaukee, it makes sense how you have that money and you're kind of predicting that you can make X amount of dollars, but still understanding that obviously it's going to be lean there in the beginning. So yeah, it seems like you'd have to get back to your certain income in order to pay the mortgage there. So why don't you tell us how the first couple of days or like transition even goes? Because how was the family business before? Were y'all break even and what were your big grand plans that obviously everything kind of seems like it switched or changed by the time you moved up there?
0: Yeah, you know, my dad and his brother had run the business really well for a number of years. And I'd say they had some good years and then they'd lose some customers and clients and then stumble a bit, not really losing money, but probably breaking even and get back to a couple good years. And by this point, they were both nearing retirement. And so I think they were not putting in the 60, 70 hour weeks anymore. And they're just kind of coasting along. And my brother was working there and probably carrying the bulk of the load at that point. And so I walked into a situation where you know they hadn't invested in a ton of new equipment or no new equipment. You know, the computer systems were dated. And I remember kind of cleaning off the desk I was going to use and seeing all these little brown dots and realizing it was mouse droppings. <laughs> The first weekend, I think my wife came and she was even pregnant and put a mask on and we're like cleaning the desks off and trying to paint and just whip the place into shape a little bit. They had some really nice customers. And so we had something to grow with. There weren't a ton of them. And like I said, the revenue was only about $700,000, but it was stable. The equipment was old, but I walked out back in our shop and looked around and some nice employees, but we didn't even have room to grow. We had no money to invest in new equipment or efficiencies or automation or anything like that. And, you know, I just looked at my brother and I said, we've got to look for some way to compete with the big guys. Our industry, and at that point, it was just kind of the screen printing industry and digital printing was just emerging. But that industry is really consolidating. The small guys like us were disappearing. Even in Milwaukee, you know, not that big of a city, there were four or five different people kind of doing what we did. And today, there's really one big player. They were disappearing. And in the bigger cities, they were disappearing as well. So we knew we had to do something. And so we looked at Mexico or China. Those were the options we thought of at that point. And you know, This is before Alibaba, vendors emailing me randomly, but I really couldn't research them or get references really. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to jump on a plane and go to China. And I just had some emails from a couple of different people there. And I'm like, I'm going to go give it a shot and look around and see what I can learn and see if there's opportunity there for us. I say the next day, but it might've been a week or two later. I flew over there. I'd read on some website that you had to go to Hong Kong for a couple of days to let your body adjust and get acclimated to the time zone. I'd never been anywhere besides Mexico and Canada at the time. I had a 16 hour flight ahead of me. I landed in Hong Kong, spent a day or two there. And I'm like, you know, I'm 29 years old. I didn't need a couple of days to adjust. I was ready to go. I'm like, what am I doing here in Hong Kong? But you know, I took a train from Hong Kong into mainland China. And then I was going to meet one of the vendors who'd reached out to me. And they'd done a couple small projects for us at that point. So I get out of the train station and I'm like, where the hell? I'm mean, looking around. I feel like there's 20 million people just like at this train station. And he'd sent me a picture of himself. And I'm like, There's pats on and jackets and I have no idea who this guy is or where he is. And I'm looking around, I'm walking in circles for a couple hours. All of a sudden this car kind of like screeches up and the door flies open. He's like, Mike, Mike, Mike. And I'm like, I assume this is for me. You know, I've never met another Chinese guy named Mike before. So I jump in the car. He's going to take me out to a factory. And, you know, he told me on the internet and through this email back and forth. He's like, oh yeah, my English is pretty good. And this is before too. Like there's no translator on your phone. I brought this 40-page little translator book with me with some common phrases like, where's the bathroom? Can I have coffee? I'm like, that's worthless when you're trying to drive to a factory and you don't know where the heck you're going and, you know, what's going on. So we're driving. I'm like, where are we going? Where are we going? And he's like, going to the Robbie factory. And I'm looking at him I'm like, Robbie. And I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, was his boss named Robbie? I keep making him repeat it. And we're driving in these dirt roads. And I know he's lost. I mean, I can see him talking to the driver. He wasn't driving. And I can see him talking to him back and forth for like an hour. And I'm seeing the same buildings over and over. And they're calling people trying to figure this out. And so we finally pull up to this big old warehouse. It's like out of a movie. And these two huge sliding doors open up. And I see inside. And there's 500 machines molding rubber. He couldn't say rubber. He called it Robbie. (laughs) (laughs) So he showed me that place, and then we went to the factory he represented, and they made membrane switches and printed overlays. And I walked in there, and it, you know, they had a dirt floor, and there's ink sprayed everywhere, and they're hand mixing, and no one's got hair net on or anything, and they're doing medical quality work, supposedly. So I told him his name was actually Lori. As much as he could understand, I said, Lori, you know, this is not a great place you're working for. And I'm glad you showed me around here today, but i got to go look at some other places. And so I kind of politely said goodbye and I went and looked at some other places and fly back to the United States. We're trying a couple different vendors still, but this Lori guy keeps emailing me and, you know, he'd say, hey, I'm working at this new place now. Give me a shot. Give me a shot. The other vendors weren't quite working out either. So, you know, we're in this experimentation stage. We're just trying to find somebody good and figured we would. And so I'm like, well, you know what? I'm going to give them another shot. I send a couple jobs there and those go a lot better and a few more and those go better. We can finish the story kind of between then and now. But essentially, Laurie became and is our director now in China. He runs our operations and does a great job. And just by pure luck and chance, this is the first person I met when I got into mainland China happens to be the guy who runs our business there today so just a huge bit of luck and you know I've had a lot of people work for me there over the years and he's been the best and super smart guy super dedicated super loyal and just real chance meeting but turned out great for everyone
1: sounds like it because 15 years later basically still working for you but do you mind if we jump back to before you even took your flight over to China no, go ahead. Yeah. So my only question there, because I think you hit on some points, especially if someone's on a family business. But first, I want to make sure that, so you had already started, I don't know if you do call it screen printing when you're doing it on these electronics back then. Because I know obviously originally when you said as a 55-year-old business that at first you were doing t-shirts and stuff, but y'all were already into these other devices. So it wasn't like brand new, right? When you joined is when y'all flipped the switch on that?
0: We'd always screen printed and we still do, mostly on plastics and metal. When I joined, we were doing... membrane switches already so that's your membrane or your microwave oven interface and that was pretty much it we didn't do silicone we didn't do metal fabrication where you're actually making or molding or cutting the metal we didn't do printed circuit boards we were in this kind of little niche you know there's some companies do great in that little niche but like i said we needed to find new opportunities because we weren't going to compete with the big players in that little niche and we were going to not survive but we had to figure it out
1: right even at that point, you're still just working the membrane switches. You hadn't started expanding these other products yet. You were just trying to get a cheaper price. It sounded like, is that the main thing? Or are you trying to, even after two weeks on the job, are you trying to find new products to source for your clients? Great question. No, we were just trying to find lower price
0: and the ability to quote on larger projects. So we knew in Milwaukee at the time that thousand membrane switches, we were not going to win that job. We just didn't have the efficiencies in place and we barely had the capacity. And so we were going to go out there and market and we knew we had to be able to respond to those requests coming in. And so we needed a a supplier that not only give us good price, good quality, but also that capacity.
1: So before you were just, again, making them all in Milwaukee, in that family-owned business area, and your whole point is, okay, I've got to find someone who can make a lot more, a lot cheaper, and then we can actually go bid out and get these projects that we never even had a chance of doing, right? Exactly. Okay. Can you give us an example of like the price difference? I don't know if you remember of a thousand switches or panels, like you said, that maybe you couldn't even do, but I mean, what is the pricing difference or efficiencies that we're looking at when you're able to land this type of a person in China to help you out?
0: Yeah, especially back then, it was even bigger disparity. I can think of one job in particular, had some LEDs on it and some tactile keys. And for 1000 in Milwaukee, we were well over $5 a unit. Our supplier in the time in China quoted about $1.10. And you see that disparity and you're like, holy cow, you're like, how can I compete? You know, and you can do it through automation. But at the time, automation's changed a lot since then. It's become a lot cheaper and kind of more integrated into the process. But back then, it was just like this is the only way to go for us.
1: You said you're doing about seven hundred thousand when you joined there. Mm-hmm. I guess this is the issue too. Is that right when you started? I think. Other family businesses get in the situation where maybe a couple of years they're making money, a couple of years they're not. You said you really didn't have any money to do anything else. It seems like you were able just to buy a plane ticket and then figure it all out within a couple of weeks and just make this all happen kind of overnight. I mean, was it an issue? I mean, or I guess trying to figure this out, like how you had money to even, you might have had some money saved up just to fly over there and back if we're talking a thousand, two thousand bucks or whatever. What else were you doing or what else did you have to walk through with your brother on how this would work? I mean, I don't know what your big strategy session was or even if you had one, because again, when you moved up there, it seems like a lot of things were going the way you weren't expecting.
0: It did not happen that quickly or that smoothly. You know, it was a lot of learning experiences trying to find the right vendor over there. And what I'm leaving out too is we're in this experimentation stage, but that's a real client who had come to us to get this product made and they really need it on time and high quality. And so we would do things where we'd go to two or three different vendors and have all three of them make the same part as a sample and then bring them over to the U.S. and look at them and be like, well, that one's a little better than that one. And that one has this little issue. And what did they do here? And why isn't this quite right? And so my brother, especially, he's the technical one. He'd been in the industry and grown up in the family business and I hadn't. So especially him, he'd be like, well, this, their ink's not running smoothly and they're not using the right pressure on their squeegee across the silk screen, and all this technical stuff. He would, take a video or try and lay out like a SOP operating procedure that we could send over there to them so they could figure out how to do it better. And we're like trying to train them how to do it the way that we would do it in Milwaukee because we did really high quality stuff here. We just didn't have the capacity and the skill set. Or labor (laughs) costs. Yeah. So we were going through that. I mean, like I said, we had these kind of good clients. So I'd say the first strategy was look for the low hanging fruit. So let's go visit everyone that we've worked with for Someone we'd worked for for 25, 35 years, and they had more work, but we weren't getting it because we weren't efficient, or you know, maybe we were late on a job five years ago, or maybe because we hadn't reached out to them in a while, and we didn't have a marketing department. And So you go after the low-hanging fruit, and you go out and you meet your clients, and you and you visit, and you try and pick out some new items to quote. That was kind of strategy number one. I'd say strategy number two, we didn't do any marketing at that point. We had a website. It actually had a picture of my uncle with, with like a rollover that made him into a pirate when you rolled your mouse over the image. <laughs> so, you know, so my job was I came in, like I said, I didn't have the technical experience. I was motivated. I had a marketing degree and I'd come out of consulting and I'm just like, we're going to figure this out. And so I rebuilt our website just using free tools and training myself. And I started working on the pay-per-click advertising and figuring that out on my own. And that became you know kind of our second big strategy for acquiring new clients. And then we just tried to kind of clean up the operation get it streamlined and more efficient so that we could focus on these new clients that would be coming in.
1: That seems easy, huh? No,
0: no. <laughs> no, God, no. Somebody asked me the other day, they're like, what do you wish you would have known when you got into this? And I'm like, maybe it's because I was 29 and you know a little cocky, but I'm like, I really thought I could take on the world and just blow this thing up overnight. And it's a huge challenge. And and. Being in charge of a business too, it's, you never turn it off. You know, I don't care where in the world I am and I'm lucky enough to be able to travel here and there, but still checking my email. And even if I'm not checking my email, my mind is like, oh, you know, why don't I do this when I get back? And why didn't I strategize and try and grow this area of the business? And it's a challenge, but like I said, it's one I love to take on and, you know, I love working with my different clients and learning something new every day. So that's the fun part.
1: If you run your own business, you're used to doing it all, but If you're struggling to get through your to-do list, well, HoneyBook can help. When you started your business, did you dream about all those admin tasks, like drafting proposals and contracts, and tracking down payments? If that wasn't part of your vision, you need HoneyBook. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that organizes your client communications, bookings, contracts, and invoices. And it's all in one place. HoneyBook makes it simple to run your business better. Professional templates, e-signatures, and built-in automation keeps everything on track and makes you look good. They can even consolidate services you already use, like QuickBooks, Google Suite, Excel, and MailChimp, or even Gmail. It's the number one choice for client and business management for freelancers and business owners. Save time and do more of what you love with HoneyBook. And right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit HoneyBook.com forward slash millionaire. Payment is flexible and the promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to HoneyBook.com slash millionaire for 50% off your first year. That's HoneyBook.com forward slash millionaire. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby, the live virtual receptionist and 24-7 live chat service dedicated to helping small business owners like you grow their businesses. From answering and transferring calls to taking messages and answering FAQs, booking appointments, and capturing leads and intake information, Ruby's got your back. Their friendly professional receptionist and chat specialist act as an extension of your team, giving the appearance of being in your office, They create great first impressions for the first-time customers and help you build loyalty and repeat business with high-touch, personalized service based on your instructions. Learn why more than 10,000 business owners choose Ruby. Try Ruby risk-free with their 21-day money-back guarantee. Just call 866-611-7829 today or visit callruby.com forward slash millionaire to get started. And if you're looking for more information about Ruby Receptionist, be sure to tune in to episode 147, where I interview the founder, Jill Nelson. When do you have those thought processes? Because I know for me, it's like, if I'm taking a shower or something, that's the only time I don't have any technology around me. It's like it's kind of zone out. I think of these types of things, really trying to make things more efficient. I think that's what all of us are trying to do as business people kind of at the end of the day. Or if I'm driving or if I'm the gym, those are the kind of the times that I can think about those things. I mean, is there a particular time when you're able to think of like these things to kind of help you out and get your business headed in the right direction? You know what's really interesting is over
0: the years, my number one time that I get that, I'll say the downtime to sit there and really focus on the business and strategize and the flight home from China and then being over there as well you're on the flight, you have 16 hours, I can't sleep on a plane. So, you know, I got my books and I got my notepad and I just sit there and like to have that much time in my regular life here, it just never happens. So I think about, I've probably spent, God, I was thinking about it, I mean, well over a month of my life on a plane flying <laughs> back and forth to China. I'll be damned if I'm going to waste that time. So I really do. I get off the plane and I'll have all these notes and little post-it notes and highlighted things. And, you know, I've read two books and I've got this idea and that idea. And so I really take advantage of that time. And, and other than that, yeah, at, at the gym I or running, I'm training in the beginning stages of training for a marathon right now. And it's all podcasts. And I, I've actually been listening to a lot of your podcasts the last couple of weeks. So
1: It's the best podcast you're listening to, right? You know, I really do enjoy it. and I've recommended it now to a couple of people. So Oh, I appreciate it. Well, this will be one of the better interviews for sure. But I guess if we go back and write down kind of the strategies, even you said when you came over there, because again, I think this is really important if anyone's going into their own family business, kind of thinking these things out like you did, is the first thing that you went is you went to those like old clients or low hanging fruit. So that didn't really cost you any money, right? Like to go find those clients or something maybe that you screwed up in the past. And then you said, you just started marketing to try to kind of find those businesses. And then once you were able to, you realized you had to go to China was that after you talked to these people, you're like, hey, we need to get a lower cost and I need to go to China. So really, it's kind of free to for anyone to go ahead and go find those clients if they are going to old clients. And then obviously, it costs money to travel to China and figure that out. But just trying to find those efficiencies is really what seems like made your business take a big leap forward, at least these 15 years later.
0: Yeah. It is free to go after those existing clients, our Rolodex, I'll date myself. And we had hundreds of names in there, and some of them hadn't ordered in years. And it's like, well, I got John Smith over here and he's five blocks away. Why haven't I visited him in three years or whatever it is, you know? So we definitely went after that. But in terms of going to China, it was really it was day one. Day one, I knew I had to do it. I didn't leave on day one and kind of got settled in and worked on a few things first. It was early in that transition so that I took off and like I said, uh, flew over there. And and in the scope of things, yeah, it seemed like a lot of money at the time and probably the
1: best investment I ever made. Especially if you could even kind of figure that out without buying the plane ticket. Like, I don't know if, did you know it was going to be that much cheaper? Even before you left, if you knew it was going to be that cheaper, it'd be a no brainer, obviously. Like if you can get a unit for $1.50 versus $5 for the same unit, obviously it's a no brainer to get over there as soon as possible. And you think just the change was your dad or your uncle at that time beforehand. Did they know about this? They just didn't really want to act like it. They were fine with the kind of the family business, but now you were kind of young guy who was gonna blow up the world the next day. Was that the mindset and what made you go versus why they didn't end up doing that?
0: Yeah, I think my dad and his brother didn't really realize that this offshoring thing was kind of eating their cake. I mean it was happening and they weren't going to stop it and other competitors were doing it and it didn't take a lot to transition the project over there because there's not a huge tooling cost to moving something to China when it's a membrane switch so I don't think they were fully aware of what was going on and my brother was running the business and I think he was anti-China and you know I had to talk him into it to trying these projects over there and trying these jobs and I'll be honest I know one or two or three of these jobs that came in like he'd sit there and kind of laugh at me a little bit like Mike look at that there's we can't sell that we'd make them here in the U.S. and lose money on it or like i said we try two three vendors so that we get one good vendor out of the three but I think he saw early on that it was the right direction to go. But we were going to stumble a bit, and we were going to struggle, and we were going to have to figure it out. And so, you know, it was key finding the right vendor, and we didn't find him on my first trip, and we didn't find him, you know, the first two or three jobs we tried. But eventually, we did, and we really stand behind our product. And that's one thing my father taught me is the importance of honesty and, and transparency in business, and serving the client. At the end of the day, drive across the country to deliver a part that was needed in Oklahoma or something, you know. And so he. Taught me that. And we really took that to heart. And that's still such an important part of our business here today.
1: And I think it's important too, what you said is you didn't get hit it the first time, like out of the park, right? But you could tell that you were going the right way and that at least you got a product back, right? Even if it was kind of crappy, but if you got it for a fifth of the cost, you're like, okay, I bet eventually if we keep trying Because it's the same thing like when I hired my very first virtual assistant, I think I maybe had them do some data work and maybe half of it could have been wrong. But the other half they did and it was so cheap that I'm like, okay, you know, I can see that this can work. Someone on the opposite side of the world can actually still help me, which is kind of crazy, you know, it's like. Before doing that, I mean, I never talked about that shit in business school or anywhere else, you know, the cost of labor somewhere else, kind of like what you're taking advantage of as well. These people who work elsewhere who want jobs and you can obviously make money from being able to do that and employ someone else that, especially if it's someone across the world versus someone like in your office that you can show right there, there are going to be hiccups and stuff in the beginning. But if you can see the momentum going, then it's worth the, obviously to keep trying and keep pushing on. Yeah, Absolutely. I've been honing in on the first couple of years or even first year. Do you want to walk us through like maybe some important points of your business that maybe we could learn from? Whatever points that you think would be best, if you can just give us a year or let us know how many years you've been there and what actually occurred.
0: Yeah, it's been a long, slow rise. In listening to your other podcasts, I hear these like, hey, we had this moment or we had this client that... you know." everything changed overnight. And I went back and kind of looking at our revenue numbers here. I mean, from 2005 to 2008, we averaged 30% growth, which is fantastic. But we didn't have one year where we did five times or anything like that. You know, I'd just say we worked hard and we wanted that breakthrough client or we wanted to have that instant success, but we had to grind for it. And so we got through those years really just kind of doing what I told you before is, you know, a lot of pay-per-click, still looking at existing customers, growing our existing accounts has always been key to us. There's such a long development time in what we do, especially now more custom projects and turnkey projects. I'm spending a lot of time and energy to bring somebody in that door. And they're not going to throw a million dollars of work at me on day one. They're going to give me these little bits and pieces and I'm going to have to grow that over time. And so we've always been doing that. Those clients that we started working with in 2006 and seven, you know, those are our biggest clients today over 10 years later for the most part. And it's just because it takes that much time to build that trust. And in some cases, we grew with them. In some cases, they came to us with their first product. They didn't know what they were going to do. <laughs> this many years later, you know, we just continue to grow with them. So that was kind of like the beginning
1: years, I'd say. How about like the Great Recession? Were things still fine there? Because again, at least you're, thank goodness it seems like you were outsourcing at this point in time, or else it seems like you may be being a bigger issue. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, that's why I mentioned growth from 2005.
1: Right. That's what I figured. I was like, okay, if he was just in Milwaukee, I mean, it seems like you might have a much bigger issue.
0: Yeah, we would have been a dinosaur. You know, When 2008 hit, now I'll remind you, we're diversified across all these different industries. And We've never had one client account for more than 8 9% of our revenue back then all the way to today. And that's always been strategically done. I've seen companies collapse overnight when they had 30 40% of their revenue tied up in one client who they were best friends with. And we went out to dinner every night and all this. And, yeah, somebody else comes in or they get fired and, and the whole business is gone. So we never were in that situation. What happened in 2008 is, yeah, a lot of our clients were hurting. But some were doing okay. There were some pockets that were up. But our largest client at the time, they went bankrupt and they stuck us with. We had a huge receivable from them and we'd had meetings with their CEO and their board and their bank had sent us letters saying, you know, everything's solid. They're on good footing here. And it was just like Monday morning, an email pops up and it's like, hey, appreciate all you've done for us, but we're belly up right now. You know, that was money we were never going to recover. We would have. I kind of broken even that year, maybe even squeezed out a few percent growth, but we had to write off a huge book of business, take that hit. And that was a big learning experience. And we kind of changed the way we did some things after that and definitely more aware of that type of circumstance reoccurring. So you learn from it and that's, I guess, the most important thing.
1: Well, you give us like a percentage just so everyone can get a feeling of this pain. How much money are we talking about? Like hundreds of thousands of dollars or even more?
0: It was about 10% of our revenue disappeared right off the books, just wiped it right out that day. There was a bit of a silver lining in it. You know, again, we don't make products like we make all custom products. They were actually reselling a lot of the products we made to other clients of theirs. We were able to land a little bit of that business and over the years kind of claw back some of that loss. So it wasn't as bad as it could be. But on that day, on that Monday morning, it was as bad as it could possibly be. And that leaves a lump in your throat, I'll tell you.
1: So what do you end up doing? Because again, these are the points that sometimes there's some days where I'm just like, I can't work anymore because whatever it's occurred, what happened to you right then when that happened, especially if you say it's Monday morning, you got the rest of the week. I don't know how you take that. Or again, how do you kind of deal with these pain points that again, I don't think it get discussed enough.
0: I've never dwelled on things mistakes happen. Clients are going to leave you. Business is going to move on. Employees are going to quit and find a new job. And you know, maybe early in my career, maybe in the 2005, 6, seven, maybe that would kind of drag me down. But, but by this point, and especially today, I just move on. And key employees leaving, I say, God bless you. Good luck. I appreciate everything you did for us. And maybe they'll give a good word to somebody else someday <laughs> or come back. You never know. But in this case, it was the same thing. I mean, this was a harder loss to swallow. But, you know, we went through legal challenges and we made our claim in court. I mean, we did everything that you need to do to try and recover. But at the end of the day, there was nothing we could do to get that money back other than try and find some of those clients that they were selling to and work with them. And we got a little bit of it back that way. But otherwise, it was just look forward, learn from your mistakes, don't do it again, don't be stupid, but look forward and look for new opportunities. And I'd say if there's one thing we did, my brother and I doubled down. Well, the hell with that. We're going to have to make twice as many phone calls for the next couple of months cuz we got to replace this business. And we did. By 2009, we're back on our growth spurt. 12% growth that year, but between 2009 and and this year, you know, we've averaged over close to 25% growth year over year. Again, we didn't have that huge pop that I would love to experience. We had some nice little pops, but it's just that solid nose to the grindstone, get it done, keep growing, put the tools in place, put the people in place invest in the business, put the equipment in place too. I mean, we're constantly, you know, investing in automation, plastic molding machines, CNC, you know, all these things. This morning I bought a plastic molding machine for, it wasn't the most expensive one I've bought. Somebody calls me at, what was it? 7 a.m. this morning. You know, Lori calls me, hey, machine down. This one's not good. You know, I'm like, oh, go buy another one. So there, there we go.
1: (laughs) So how much does a machine like that cost?
0: Oh, this one was about 25,000 and then we have to automate it and integrate it and put in a new cooling tower and oil lines and, you know, we'll be 35, 40. And by the time, by the time it's up and running, but you know, this is the crazy thing. I'll tell you just a little bit about China and people ask me like, what's it like there? And there's the the environment of it, you know, in terms of like chickens running around the crowdedness and all that, but in terms of the business, if I want to buy a plastic molding machine here and install it in Brookfield, and we don't mold here, but if I want to, you know, I gotta make the call. The sales guy might come out. It's a couple of days. They're gonna schedule it. You know, I need somebody to come out here and train me, install it. I mean, this might be there's probably somebody out there listening who's gonna disagree, but but this is a couple of weeks project, you know. Right. I've had other equipment installed here and it's taken months. Like we have a, a nitrogen generator for generating nitrogen for certain curing of inks, and it took months to get this thing installed and operating. And if, if I need the guy to come out here and fix it, it's like oh, I'll be out there in a week or so. And in China, I ordered that plastic molding machine this morning. I would be willing to bet that it's up and running by tomorrow afternoon in China. They will drop it off, install it. We had another piece of equipment installed just two weeks ago. It was a new digital printing machine, a really nice piece of equipment. And we told the company that we bought it from. So we negotiate, we told, you know, get the price right. And we're like, okay, you're going to send out the trainer guy because we've never used this before. And we're going to put him in our dormitory on site. And he's not allowed to leave until we're comfortable with that machine and it's running right that was part of the purchase agreement you know he's free to leave he's not locked in or anything like that but essentially he's like I'll stay as long as you guys need for you to get comfortable with that machine and get it running right and that just doesn't happen here
1: (laughs) yeah and I mean if people disagree with you so be it but if you're hiring a contractor to do something on your house or remodel your kitchen of course they can get it done in a couple weeks but you know how long does it really take months (laughs) you know so I think most of us can understand that it's like some people are going to say they can do in that time, like the proof's and the pudding. But you've experienced it and yet to have that happen. Yeah, I was going to ask if you actually had that done in China. So is everything in China now versus anything actually there in your U.S. site?
0: No, you know what? Our business here in the U.S., so when I joined in 2005, we are doing the labels and screen printing, and we still have about the same number of people and, and about the same volume of work being done here in the U.S., it's a core to our business is having that capability here and we learn from it and it gives us kind of flexibility for our clients to prototype quick and to sometimes we'll ramp up the job here and then, then it moves to China. So we've always kept that here and it's kind of near and dear to our heart and our history having that. But we've added some capabilities and we definitely have some new equipment and some more automation and about a year and a half ago, we moved to a new facility and built it out and have a clean room and really upgraded at that point.
1: So do you still just have like 10 people here locally versus, I know you said you have 165 employees now, or most of them in China? Yeah, good question. We have
0: about, I think we have 14 here now in Wisconsin. We've been as high as 20, just depending on our work volume in the manufacturing area. And also we've had kind of some more support people here. You mentioned before the virtual assistants, we actually have two employees now down in Bogota, Colombia, outsourced virtual employees. It's interesting you said, you know, like you see the light at the end of the tunnel when you start and we're in that early kind of honeymoon phase where it's like, wow, like one day I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. And they're doing a great job. And the next day I'm like, was she working today? Cause I really, <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, and so, you know, we're in that phase, but you know, I think it'll work out. You know, it's interesting. We went that route. I'll be honest with you. I mean, there's a cost labor savings and you know, that's for sure. But I was hiring here and we had the, you know, the help wanted sign out. And our unemployment rate in Wisconsin is a little over 2%. And nationally, it's not much higher than that. And I couldn't get anyone in the door who had the skill set I needed and was within our kind of budgeted salary range. So that's why we were kind of driven to do that.
1: Yeah. From my experience, for me, it's like one of the first things I do is like, even if I post a job application, I like the first thing I put in there is requirements. is like, you have to say, hola, back to me in your message if you want to be, because if you can't even follow a simple direction, then I'm not going to hire you. And then the second thing is like making sure people don't disappear on you. So, I mean, I use Skype. It depends, again, on people to people, but I'm like, I want to make sure they message me several days in a row first before I even get them the job, because the last thing I want them to do is just disappear on me. So that was always the worst for me is, okay, when I'd hire someone and let's say I give them a job, they do a good job. And then you don't hear from them after like, maybe they do a good job for the first week. And then after that, they just disappear, which happened multiple times. I'm like, okay, the main thing is finding those people who actually show up. And like you're saying, you're like, wondering if they actually did something today or not. But it's always just like fascinating. Again, stuff they don't teach you in school or you think about, I guess, luckily you kind of understood this concept of the outsourcing and the ability to do that by going to China. But again, there's so many other businesses that have no freaking clue of like, you know, the ability to do those things or do the easy data input that other people don't want to do in the US, or maybe it's not worth your time, obviously. And those people are gladly will do it at a wage that you're like, wow, you can even do that minimum wage here, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I use Upwork a lot
0: too. I mean, I love, I've had some great success on there like, you know, finding people to do website development or special projects and things like that. So Yeah, we're definitely willing to look at kind of taking advantage and leveraging those things.
1: Yeah, and again, it's the patience thing. Again, with what you did in China too, it's just like understanding that I've had people like, oh, it didn't work the first time. I'm like, oh, boo-hoo, are you all right? It's not always gonna work the first time. The first hire you make in the US isn't always gonna work. You know, maybe you get lucky, like, you said with that China guy, but I mean, he wasn't necessarily at the right place at the right time. You remember you had to wait till he went to a different factory. So it's working the system and understanding that in theory, this is going to work if I just gonna keep grinding to it and not giving up. It seems like a huge amount of your business in China. Do you have to end up staying up late a lot or like, how does that work with the communications?
0: Yeah. you know, I schedule it into my life a little bit. So in terms of work-life balance, I'm home every night for dinner. I want to, spend time with my family. And then, you know, normally a little bit later, I'll just log in. And as we've developed our system and we have a great ERP system for planning and scheduling and all that, when I need to get on the phone, it's normally because either something's really wrong or something's really right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I'm hoping it's that really right. You know, like some customer this morning's phone call was not only about the plastic molding, but somebody ordered 200,000 parts. I'm like, yes, how are we going to do this? You know, let's figure it out. Let's get it done. So, uh, you know, I love touching base with the people there too. And so it's, it's about communication and, and staying in touch, but it's not so much anymore like, Hey, is the color right? Or are we going to modify that tool slightly? Those conversations, uh, you know, they're able to, to handle on their own. Really. I have a great team over there. Our leadership team, most of them have been with us now for seven, eight years and they're skilled. And we just keep bringing in the resources as needed to make sure that we're doing a good job.
1: Is your dad and mom still with
0: you today? my mom did pass away. So that, that's what kind of pulled my father out of the business. And yeah, my father lives a few blocks away and he stops over and says hi and, and smiles and wonders how the hell we got to where we are.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask. Cause I was like curious what his thoughts are, like how you're able to do it. What does he tell you?
0: You know, it's funny. Cause when I came in, I mean, he really just, my mom was having these health problems, but he just handed the reins over to my brother and I and said, you guys are young and hungry and you guys go run with it. And so, he loves to know what we're doing. He loves to kind of be kept up to date. You know, he comes in and sits down. You know, I always have like 20 different projects on my desk and he'll pick up one and be like, what is this? And how does that work? You know, and, you know, he's always given me his, his two cents worth. And most of it's not on the technical side. It's on the staying true to our company guiding principles and our practices. And that's doing the right thing. I mean, that's, that's one of our practices here, kind of our daily operational goals and motivations is to, is to do the right thing, go with your gut, generally know what it is. And so you know he taught me that and we continue to practice that.
1: Looking back, you said you've had a lot of steady growth. I don't know if we hit on like maybe the hardest thing that you've had to overcome so far. Cause again, it seems like everything's kind of worked out over time. Obviously we didn't hit out of the park the first time, but it slowly worked out. So is there anything else as far as like the hardest thing that you had to go through and growing your business? Yeah. You know, I'd say that client going bankrupt was a huge one, but
0: To put it in perspective, in 2008, I was diagnosed with melanoma. I had a large lump on my back for a number of years and finally got a biopsy and removed. And I thought it was just a tissue or, you know, and I sat down with my doctor afterwards and, you know, he sat there with my wife and I in this little teeny room. I don't know where the hell they found this little room to put us in. It was like a closet. And he said, "Uh, you know, you need to go home and get your will together and get everything in order. And this doesn't look good. Like you've had this for a number of years. And I didn't say anything to him. I think I was just like dead silent. I walked out of the room and I looked at my wife and I said hell no this is not my time this is not going to be the end of me right now and so it's really a, not a business challenge but I underwent chemotherapy for a year and during that year I don't think I missed a day of work unless I was traveling for medical treatments which was you know fairly frequently but I was there every other day I might have been napping by 2 in the afternoon with my head on my desk and and drooling or something but I was like this isn't going to stop me that was a huge challenge and that burden fell on my brother to kind of carry the business for that year get us through that and it taught me a good lesson though about that work-life balance and and really what's important at the end of the day. So what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and you know I got through it and move forward.
1: What just like drives you today? Because I would imagine that you know you keep having again the success and obviously like having to overcome something like that. Obviously it's difficult at the time too. But I mean now we're probably about ten years later, and it seems like again everything's going. How do you keep your drive up to keep growing?
0: You know I think the number one thing that excites me in the morning when I get up, you know, I'm not only working for my own business, but I'm working for my client's business. You know, I mentioned like the Zombait, the fishing lure product. I mean, they're relying on me. They're relying on RSP to grow their business and provide them this high quality product. And it's exciting to see, you know, they're two younger guys and they're taking on the world and they're talking about how they're going to grow it and their marketing strategy and maybe getting some advice from me. And That's just exciting. So as long as I'm serving them well, and and I've got, you know, 20 clients like them active right now, they're exciting me and they're motivating me to do a good job. And so for them in particular, we brought in this new kind of pressure tank testing system to test their product. And I was just over in China a couple of weeks ago and playing with that. And that's like super cool, you know, (laughs) and then going out and seeing their product on the shelf. I mean, you know, I can walk into a museum of modern art. Has one of our clients' products sitting there, and it's cool to walk in there with my son and you know his friends and be like, "Oh, I made that." And they look at me, you know, his friends, like, "What in the? Heck? What are you talking about? You made that?" Well, I'm like, "I didn't sit down with my own two hands and make it, of course." But it's just cool. It keeps you going. And like I said, I got my clients really do challenge me to do better and to improve. And you know, we're we're continuously improving and pushing ourselves. At the end of the day, it's not money. I appreciate money. It gives me the opportunity to travel and you know have my fun hobbies that I like but I don't know and I god I want to make more but it doesn't get my juices flowing in the morning that's for sure.
1: Well is there like one tool or system or anything that you might want to say that's like really helped you now that you look back that maybe we could implement or something that we could implement in our businesses that would help us as well?
0: Yeah, you know, I'd say our business like the backbone of it right now is really FileMaker and so it's a relational database it's owned by Apple I think. We built our ERP system Originally my brother used it in two thousand three and then in two thousand five I started working with him on it and we built all these segments and as our business grew and changed we just kept like morphing it into what we wanted it to be but not really knowing what we we're doing. You know, <laughs> I'd read the FileMaker Guide for Idiots and was just dangerous enough to put some things together. Probably about a year ago we realized and I actually because of two of our employees here, they said you know, Mike, have you ever thought about redoing this? I'm like, God, I'd love to. And I've had this and that, and I've paid for that, and, you know, done all this stuff. And they're like, no, we really think we can reorganize this and we can actually do it ourselves. And so they had a little bit of background and they started just working on it and one of those employees actually it's his full-time position now is building out this ERP system and it's a little bit of a work in progress we're probably 85 percent in but the efficiencies and benefits and all that are just huge already so we took all these different pieces and put them together into one functioning master system and it's really cool to see and I you know, I've heard some of your guests talk about how huge that was for them and also like how much you can spend on it for us to develop it internally and kind of get to this point for maybe a fraction of what that outside firm outside software would it cost is really cool
1: yeah i'm pretty just amazed about all this what were your work hours like in the beginning because if you're doing all this flying to china you know going visiting all these clients it just seems like i'm surprised you're able to even like kind of figure out an erp system like enterprise resource planning is what the erp stands for is that's i guess a way to keep everything systemized and instead of having a lot of different documents in different places is that kind of the idea
0: yeah it really pulls together every aspect of our business into just a centralized database. I mean, that's really what it is. and so it's our it's salesforce, it's scheduling, it's marketing, you know, it's all of it just just in one place. So you know in terms of my hours and workload, yeah, it's funny, I don't see it as work. As strange as that sounds, like when you enjoy what you're doing and you're coming in every day and you're excited to do it, it's fun and I enjoy the people I work with. My bits of advice I'd throw in there are, you know, love what you do. And when you hire people, I've hired some people that I didn't like working with. <laughs> they're not here anymore. Like hire people you like to work with, do what you love to do. But yeah, I put in a lot of hours in those early years and I try and do it on the, in the morning side. My, my wife and my son, they're, they're not morning people. So. Yeah, yesterday I rolled out of bed at five and I'm like, I'm gonna go to work. And then I got home at 4.30. So, you know, it was probably a long day for most people's standards. But for me, it's like, well, I got home early and I got to hang out in the backyard. And so that's fantastic. You know, more recently, I've toned down the hours. There's still that travel to China and I might spend a month over there during the year. I mean, that's a long time to be away from your family. And I realize that and I really appreciate my wife and and my son for supporting me through that because a lot falls on them when I'm gone. And little things like mowing the lawn to big things like unexpected flooding in the basement or whatnot. I mean it seems like every time I go there's gonna be something. I don't know what it's gonna be, but there's always something. So you know really need their support. But the flip side of that is, you know, I get to share that experience with them. And so they've gone over to China with me a couple of times and we're planning a kind of a month long little jaunt over there and the end of this year. And they get to, you know, I try and share that with them and and especially for my son to be able to say, Hey, I've traveled around the world and I've spent time in Hong Kong and China and seen the terracotta warriors and this stuff. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool to share that with them.
1: I think it makes sense. I think a lot of people listening to know that like, if you're excited about what you're doing, it doesn't really feel like work. I mean, even last night I was up till 2, 3am working on these extra things that I can't work on during the regular business hours. I find there's extra time that I can try different stuff to either like market the business or try to come up with different ways of getting revenue and stuff like, it sounded like that you did in the beginning, even trying to make things just more efficient with this ERP system that you implemented. I appreciate you walking us through here. I think we touched on kind of the hardest, most difficult stuff you've had to go through. And did you have any last words of wisdom as far as if anyone wanted to take something from this interview? I know, again, you want to make sure people love what they do, because then it, doesn't, it really doesn't feel like work. I think if you have a job that you hate, and then you finally find something that you like, you kind of realize like, okay, This feels way better than what I was doing before, but what else would you like to leave for everybody who's listening to this interview today?
0: Yeah, you know, looking back at the history of the company here and what we've done, I mean, we've been willing to take risks, but we always kind of have, they're measured. And so I'd say we plan for the best, but but we always prepared for the worst. And you're going to have these hurdles. You're going to have these challenges. I mean, I've had the customer go bankrupt. I've had key employees leave. We've had flooding at our building in China when actually one of our clients was over there and helped us sandbag for a few hours you know, these things are going to happen. But if you're prepared for them, if you have a plan, if you have a good solid core business, and again, maybe that diversification as well, like being diversified across industries and clients, you know, you're going to get through it. And so, you know, I always stay focused on looking forward and and overcoming those challenges. But, you know, when we do our annual planning and when we have our quarterly meetings, we have a kind of a board of directors we meet with, and we're always talking about, hey, that what if, what if, you know, it's that, so and so got hit by the bus tomorrow, or this machine blows up, or we have a fire. What are we going to
1: do? And and we have plans in place for a lot of those scenarios. So I guess the way you diversify risk is through these clients and whatnot. But another way, I mean, like even what you're saying, kind of alluding to, is maybe having extra money in the bank for these things and not getting over leveraged with looking at only the good times, or else you can, kind of can get screwed there.
0: Yeah, that's really true. And and you know, I would just add it. Even last year, we're this business with 55 years of history and these. 15 plus years of almost continuous growth, if you take out 2008. And even last year, we moved buildings, we had this expensive build out, we had a client who delayed some work, we had a couple projects delayed, we had these, and even, you know, as solid as we were, you know, you can get kind of shaken to your foundation really quick when few things happen at the same time. And we got through it really quick, but there was like you know just a couple of weeks there where I'm like, oh man, how did this happen? You know, I thought I planned for everything. I thought there was uh, no way this could happen, but it can happen, and it does happen. And if you're not prepared for it, you can really suffer a loss pretty quick.
1: Again, Mike, we appreciate you doing this interview. If someone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, or if they wanted to dream about something that you can build for them, what's the best way for them to reach you?
0: Yeah, my email is the best way to get in touch with me. It's Mike. At rspinc.com. All
1: right. Well, thank you for doing the interview, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Austin. It's been a pleasure. Hey there. One special announcement for you Are you or your company interested in reaching an audience of entrepreneurs? Our network and I are always on the lookout for businesses that we can partner with. Over the past year, we've been lucky enough to work with sponsors like Gusto, Start Engine, and Skillshare. And we've been able to help them grow their businesses by reaching our podcast audience of high-earning professionals, business founders, and successful solopreneurs. Well, over this next year, we're looking for three to five new sponsors to partner with. So if your business could benefit by reaching the thousands of entrepreneurs listening right now, and you're actually serious about sponsoring our show, then shoot me an email at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. The first three listeners to place an order with us will receive a five-minute spotlight on their business that will air after one of our episodes. So again, if you're interested in growing your business as we grow this podcast, then shoot me a personal email at austin at millionaire-interviews.com.